Today we're going to be looking at uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24. And we're going to see that the, the flow was originally intended to get to verse 31, but that's not how far this study, study got. And I'm guessing we're not going to have enough time anyhow. So let's give careful attention to God's word as we read it from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 18 through 24, or 31. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, and sanctification, and redemption. So as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we pray as uh, we unpack your word today that we might realign our thoughts, our motives, and our aspirations to be uh, for the things that you are for, that we might think your thoughts, that we might find our uh, hearts and minds uh, more and more in accordance with what you've revealed in your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I, I'm going to set out before you today that Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 is setting out before us two types of wisdom, two types of wisdom. And uh, a useful way to jump into that is uh, probably a little historical prologue on Corinth, um, which might be tiresome for some of you, but here we go. In 146 BC, the Greeks tried to cast off the, the yoke of the Roman Empire in an attempt to regain her glorious Greek past. It was make, Greek, make Greece great again, I suppose. The site of her stake for independence was Corinth. Now, Corinth was the ideal location for a prolonged battle, giving the Greeks an impervious defense. The Greeks took their stand on the Acropolis, a steep mass of rock about 750 feet above sea level with a nice plateau on top large enough to build a town upon. But even with this tactical advantage, the Greek city-states succumbed to the much larger Roman army. In order to make an example of the city so that Roman vassals would not vie for independence, the Roman general Mummius 
sacked the city, enslaved its inhabitants, destroying its building and carried off its art, one of Corinth's greatest treasures. Corinth was destroyed in 146. Once the, rich Greek, the once rich Greek city-state became a vacated wasteland inhabited only by grave robbers hoping to find riches among the dead. Not only were her inhabitants dead, but also ancient Greece's influence on Corinthian culture was dead. Most of what remained of her culture lie to be unearthed by future archaeologists. A hundred years later, in 44 BC, Julius Caesar refounded Corinth as a Roman colony. Much like its Greek counterpart a century earlier, Corinth became an extremely wealthy city. Its geographical location on the isthmus placed it in a strategic position for international trade. This was especially due to the fact that Corinth had two good ports on the east and the west, something Vladimir Putin would be eminently jealous of. Two good warm water ports on both sides to the east and the west, separated only by a flat three-mile stretch of road, which served as an ancient dry canal, which facilitated trade with the rest of the ancient world. Although building resumed and the economy flourished, Corinth was no longer peculiarly Greek, even though she was technically the capital of Greece now. The buildings erected were Roman in architecture. The economy was great, but the leisure time gained by the booming economy did not produce the Greek interest in philosophy or the love of wisdom that had once filled the air. Whereas the old Corinthian pondered things such as virtue, the immortality of the soul, etc., the new Romanized Corinth was intensely practical in accord with Romans in general. They're very interested in being pragmatic and efficient and practical, and his philosophy in here was more of a pseudo-philosophy, less interested in ultimate realities than upon making their lives easier. So upon Paul's writing of 1 Corinthians around 55 AD, Corinth had been developing for 100 years. Inevitably, as a port city, Corinth had developed a large international population of all kinds of folks. Jews, Romans, and Greeks are in the city, consisting not only of the wealthy and the powerful, but also of slaves and poor people. And this early melting pot made an ideal recipe for all sorts of vice. The very term Corinthian came to be synonymous with profligate. Corinthian, profligate, same thing. It is in this new city that Paul had planted a church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul had first preached the gospel in Corinth five years previous to this, five years previous to his penning of 1 Corinthians. He spent a good while there. Acts 18.11 tells us he spent 18 months there, planting the church and nurturing them in the faith. And after Paul had planted the church, he sailed to Syria. So 1 and 2 Corinthians are the remaining letters of some correspondence between Paul and the Corinthian church. We know from 1 Corinthians 5.9 that Paul had written them at least once before. This letter that we know is entitled 1 Corinthians. We know from that that he had warned them not to keep company with sexually immoral people, but we don't have all of that previous dialogue. A lot of that's going to come down to some mirror reading. Some of their previous dialogue becomes apparent as we read through 1 Corinthians, but for the most part, we're left clueless as to what the particular situation the Corinthian church was in. But we do know this, and I'll just sort of run through some of their struggles. 
We know the Corinthian church struggled with, A, a division over church leaders. I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. Hey, I didn't baptize anybody except these people so that I'm happy that you're not going to identify with me, right? There was the concern about the misuse of the sacraments, right? They were breaking people up into groups, rich and poor people. Uh, and you can see that in uh, chapter 11, verses 18 through 22. There's also moral problems. Chapter 5, we find out that a man has his father's wife. Paul tells him, kick this person out of the church. We also see that there's food sacrificed to idols. There's controversy about that in chapter 8. There's brothers suing each other in chapter 6. Paul's apostleship is questioned in chapters 4 and 9, and the resurrection is being denied in chapter 15. So what we have in 1 Corinthians is a one-way dialogue with the Apostle Paul pastoring his children in the faith from a distance. Every word that he wrote was written with his deep pastoral concerns to exhort, rebuke, instruct, and build up this disorderly church. Now, many have said that the book of 1 Corinthians, we have a letter that deals primarily with morality, whereas in the book of Galatians, we have a book that deals primarily with the gospel. But I submit to you that isn't the case. We'll see today that this assessment is untrue. Paul rises up in the first four chapters of 1 Corinthians to defend the gospel, lest it be emptied of its power. Central to Paul's defense is his contention that the Corinthians have entertained a false doctrine of Christ based upon a false concept of wisdom. So in our passage before us today, he begins to expound the differences between two fundamentally different types of wisdom, namely true and false wisdom. Wisdom from God and wisdom from man. Wisdom that subjects everything to the scrutiny of God's word and wisdom that shuns God's word. In short, Christian wisdom versus pagan wisdom. In the first three chapters alone, starting with chapter one, verse 17, Paul uses the word wisdom 13 times, yet he does it in all, yet he does not use it in the same way in all contexts. In verse 17, he refers to a wisdom of words, that is, oratorical skill, polished speech, the art of presentation and hope to persuade. And this is, of course, the wisdom that Paul says would make the cross of Christ powerless. So this leads us to verse 18. And we'll kind of unpack this verse by verse. So verse 18, Paul tells us the message of the cross, that is the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus, the gospel, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Paul, from the outset, lays forth... The diametrical opposition between the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. Those who shun the gospel are perishing, while those who embrace it are being saved. In the last day, those who are wiser than God will perish, and those who cling to Christ will be saved in its fullest sense. But what is the message of the cross? What is the gospel, and what is the power of the gospel? And so, you know, 1 Corinthians 15, we read this every Easter. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 through 4, this is the gospel he preached. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, the cross. He was buried really dead, three days stinking dead. And that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures, vivified. And he was seen by Cephas, witnessed, then by the twelve. And after that he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Not a conspiracy theorist, he's something very verifiable and clear. 
and of whom the greater part remained the present, but some have fallen asleep. Now these historic facts, witnessed by at least 500 brothers, are the core of the gospel message. And concerning the power of the gospel, Paul says, the gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek. Now, the power of God in the message of the cross is not the power of divine fiat that we witnessed in creation, but rather it's uh, the power of divine grace in rescuing unworthy sinners from death unto life. That message is the epitome of the foolishness of foolishness to the natural man who has not been born from above. Paul explains it this way when he says, The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him, nor can he know them, because they are spiritually discerned. Consider it. Were it not for the grace of God that would make you alive in Christ, you too would think that this message of the cross is foolishness, an absurdity, perhaps a statement, but surely not the power of God unto salvation. The cross is a reviled thing. Those crucified are cursed, and no cursed one could be the Messiah. This just does not compute in the Roman way of thinking. This is the most unappealing picture to those who are dead in their sins. Some in the Corinthian church were evidently not content to own such a Messiah. This is the most unappealing picture. They were wont to adjust their conception of Jesus to suit their own tastes, and that sounds like something... That's common, right? A great uh, contribution of Albert Schweitzer when he was going through the historical Jesus research, and he was no fan of Orthodox Christianity, but his conclusion was, hey, what you historical Jesus researchers keep doing is making Jesus in your own image. It has less and less to do with history and more to more to do with what you particularly want at this given political or philosophical moment. And I would submit that's a big temptation always. So people didn't like Jesus as he was being preached by Paul. They want to adjust their conception of Jesus to suit their own tastes. This message of the God-man dying, being buried, raising from the dead, and saving his people is what was being contested at Corinth. Some considered themselves to be too wise to accept this account given by Paul. And so we look at verse 19. In verse 19, uh, Paul is citing Isaiah 29, 14 to substantiate what he's saying. And Isaiah 29, 14 says, For it's written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and bring to nothing the understanding of the prudent. In the days of King Hezekiah, his court was skilled in political cunning and with secret tricky plans by which they hoped to escape the Assyrian enemy. But God instead promised that he would deal wondrously with his people by at last saving the nation by his own great deeds so that the wisdom of the wise would perish and be forced to hide itself. So, as so often happens in Israel's history, God jealously seeks to make it clear that Israel exists only because of his sovereign hand and for his glory. So the Old Testament hence predicts the overthrow of worldly wisdom Paul proclaims that the overthrow of worldly wisdom has occurred in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Move into verses 20 and 21. And so, 
Now, this brings up the whole theme of where is the wise, where is the scribe, where is the disputer of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now, Paul calls the so-called wise of this age uh, to see that their efforts have gained them. He proclaims that God has made those of this age to be fools. But why are they fools? Paul explains it in verse 21. For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, it pleased God through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. Paul uses the word wisdom in verse 21 differently than before. In verses 17 and 19, we saw that he used wisdom in the sense of worldly wisdom, practical methods of being successful in this life. In 17, wisdom is used to convey oratorical skill, while in verse 19, it's used to apply to political wisdom. But in verse 21, Paul is talking about a different kind of wisdom altogether. In Jewish wisdom literature, there's a tradition that views wisdom like a blueprint of God's creation. Mankind must apply himself to the study of nature, and in doing so, deduce personal wisdom. And a good example of this is found in Isaiah 28, 23 through 29. I'll go there. Isaiah 28, 23 through 29. Whoopsie. Isaiah 28, 23. Give ear and hear my voice. Give attention to my speech. Does he who plows for sowing plow continually? Does he continually open and harrow his ground? When he's leveled its surface, does he not scatter dill, sow cumin, and put in wheat in rows, and barley in its proper place, and emmer at the border? For he is rightly instructed. His God teaches him. Dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge, nor is a cartwheel rolled over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a stick, and cumin with a rod. Does one crush grain for bread? No, he does not thresh it forever. When he drives his cartwheel over it with his horses, he does not crush it. This also comes from the Lord of hosts. He is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. So notice that in verses 26 and 29, uh, it says, For he instructs him in right judgment, his God teaches him. All this comes from the Lord Almighty, wonderful in counsel and magnificent in wisdom. Now the question for us is, where in God's special revelation, where in the Bible does God reveal to us these farming practices, right? How does it come from the Lord then, the question is? Well, it comes from observing God's good creation, observing the meaning implanted into God's creation. This is sometimes called wisdom in the Bible. And after observing and learning how God's created order works, we're to apply what we learned to how we live, that is, to live wisely. So in verse 21, when it says, and this is back to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, in verse 21, when it says, For since in the wisdom of God, the world through wisdom did not know God, the preposition through, or maybe your translation has by, refers to a realm, God's created sphere of wisdom. 
and men did not properly interpret the data in that realm. Rather, they constructed their own wisdom, interpreting reality as though they were the center of the universe, as though God did not exist. This is very similar to saying what Paul says in Romans 1.18 through 20, right? And we'll go there really quick. Romans 1.18 through 20. Romans 1.18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they're without excuse. This is why Paul calls worldly wisdom foolish. For all that it boasts to achieve in light of God's revealed truth in creation, they come up short. For all that it boasts to achieve, it cannot bring one soul to know God. And so the world failed to see ultimate realities through her wisdom. The world viewed this age as though it were the only age. They viewed this present evil age, as Paul would call it, as though it were eternal, as though God had not left his fingerprints upon creation with the intention that the creature should seek the creator. But beloved, God's wisdom does not belong to this age. Though God's created realm of wisdom wisdom is clear for the objective seeker to ascertain, it is not rightly ascertained because of the fall. And of course, beloved, this issue of improperly interpreting general revelation or creation, it's the same problem that we often have with the Bible, you know. Unless the Spirit enlivens us and makes us alive to the things of God, we'll be dead to that. And our interpretation of both of those buckets of revelation will be tainted. So Paul sets this wisdom, this worldly wisdom, the wisdom of this age, in opposition to the wisdom of the age to come. And uh, sorry, for the first time ever, I've started printing on both sides of a paper, and it's frustrating. First uh, Corinthians 2, 6 through 10, I'll read really quickly. First uh, Corinthians 2, 6 through 10. Yet among the mature, we do impart wisdom. Although it's not a wisdom of this age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it's written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. These things God has revealed to us through His Spirit, for the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. Now, those who hope in the wisdom of this age will come to nothing, it says. The wisdom of which Paul speaks is from above, and God reveals it by His Spirit. But for those who have not received things of the Spirit of God, this message remains veiled and foolish to them, as Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 2.14 states. 
But it pleased God nonetheless through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe, not by the wisdom of words, but by the word of the cross. Moving on to verses 22 and 23. For the Jews request a sign, and Greeks seek after wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, and to the Greeks foolishness. Now it's not as though Paul is only browbeating the Gentiles' wisdom here. His scathing remarks are aimed at both Jew and Gentile, both of whom have misjudged God's revelation. The Gentiles misunderstood God's revelation in creation, where the Jews misunderstood natural revelation and special revelation, both creation and his word. So the Old Testament Israelites, as you'll recall, were ever testing the Lord. In Numbers 14.11, the Lord said to Moses, How long will these people reject me? And how long will they not believe me with all the signs which I have performed among them? Many of the Jews of the Old Testament, as well as those of Jesus and the Apostles' day, were hard-hearted ever testing the Lord. When the Jews sought a sign from Jesus, Jesus replied, an evil and adulterous generation seeks after a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Now the sign of which Jesus spoke, of course, was his death, burial, and resurrection the sign that was clearly seen when Christ was publicly crucified and buried. This sign was seen by more than 500 after his resurrection, and no other sign would be given. But this sign of the death, burial, and resurrection of God's Messiah was a huge stumbling block to the Jews. Due to their misuse of the scriptures, they imagined that God would be set up, that God would set up a reign through which the Messiah would come and crush Rome. They imagined prayer meetings where, uh, this is my favorite quote from an old publication that I won't mention, uh, let's go smash some skulls in Jesus' name, right? That's the kind of thing they were envisioning. That's the kind of hopes they were having. And when they see that Jesus comes and he uh, is not after the Roman skulls, but rather the Romans' hearts, and yes, there will come a day when skulls will become crushed, but that is on the Lord's timetable, and that's the Lord's business. So, they imagined a very different Messiah. They imagined a Messiah that would come and where Israel would be exalted, and they would live under a reign much like that of David's or Solomon's. They were certain that the Messiah couldn't suffer, much less die. Think about Peter. May it never be, Lord, Peter says, right? And of course, Jesus turns around and, and immediately says, thank you, Peter, for your genuine concern for me and your hopes for a really good kingdom, and I should take you into consideration. No, Peter says, get behind me, Satan, right? Um, Jesus is pretty clear there. Um, yeah, they're hoping for a Messiah that won't suffer or die. And a resurrection, well, they're good Jews, right? Think about, was it Mary or Martha, right? I know that the resurrection will be at the last day, Lord. They, the resurrection, of course, is last day, and, and, and they're right in that, but they're also wrong in that. Time still proceeds as it always has, they reason, right? 
The last day has not come, so how can Jesus be resurrected? It, it doesn't make sense, right? It really doesn't make sense. It takes Jesus telling Mary, telling Mary, I am the resurrection and the life. Right here, resurrection time is present before you. The seed of the end of the age is in my person, and it's going to bring all that you hope for and are confusing with this present evil age to pass, right? But sometimes we're still dull, right? So for a good Jew, the question is, the last day hasn't come. How can Jesus be resurrected? It doesn't make sense. Give us signs, the Jews want to say. Give us signs that we want. Let's see some Romans' heads. That will do. But beloved, no such Messiah is Jesus. The last days indeed have come, as Hebrews 1.1 says, but they've come with the resurrection of Christ. He is the firstfruits of God's people to be resurrected. And his kingdom, it's not of this world, but a heavenly one in terms of how it's played out now. The judgment that the Jews anticipated with the Messiah's kingdom waits until he has drawn all of his people from every tongue and tribe and nation. Yes, uh, the sheep and the goats are coexisting for a bit. I guess, I guess there's some credence to that bumper sticker in a sense. Um, you know, the wheat and the tares coexist for a bit, but there will come a day when they will be sorted. The judgment that the Jews anticipated with the Messiah's kingdom waits until God has drawn in all of his people. This Jesus, this kingdom, this new age are unacceptable to the Jews. Give us a sign that we want to see, they cry. So we've seen that the Jews often rejected the wisdom of God. Namely, if we had time to unpack it, we would see that, you know, Jesus is the wisdom of God. That's where it goes at the end of chapter 1. So the Greeks, on the other hand, seek after wisdom. It is reasonably clear from the context of verse 22 that we're not speaking about your sort of stereotypical Hellenes, right? The, rather, Greeks is sort of synonymous with Gentiles, and it's mentioned in the later part of verse 22. Whatever the case, we shouldn't think of these Greeks as Greek philosopher types. As noted in the historical introduction, Greek culture was largely dead in Corinth. It was rather, it gave way to that sort of practical, day-to-day -day Roman philosophy, right? The Romans didn't have a lot of uh, time for sitting around and drinking wine and arguing things, right? Because that also required a lot of slavery if you're going to hang out all the time and just argue things, right? The Romans are like, well, we're going to elect these people and we're going to call them slaves, or we're going to call them politicians, right? It's a different thing, right? It's still the democratic principle, but it's streamlined. Like, hey, we're going to have a republic. We're going to, instead of have slaves do all the work and I argue all day, I'm going to, like, elect our slaves and you're going to do the business of government for me, right? That's sort of a, a basic distinction in their, in their systems. All that's to point out that Romans are fundamentally practical people, okay? Well, when we look at that passage, I would submit to you that we shouldn't think of Greeks as, you know, it's not Plato incarnate or Plato reincarnate hanging around, right? It's pretty certain Paul's not referring to a first century Plato. Some have suggested that Paul is writing in response to rampant Gnosticism in Corinth. Now, Gnosticism, of course, is the idea that, you know, there's this spiritual secret 
And if you become initiated in our group and follow our websites, but you get it, right? There's this secret knowledge that only those like really special get it, right? And uh, yeah, Paul and you know First John, I mean, they're arguing with sort of a proto-Gnosticism in many cases, which is this basically Greek philosophy, right? Greek philosophy makes a decision between body and the spirit. The spirit is in the body. The body is the prison house of the soul, and it's a great day when you get separated from it, right? Whereas Jews and Christians say, no, the body's a good thing. It's a good creation of God. And the fact that when we die and the body and the spirit get separated is unnatural. It's weird and wacky, and we shouldn't like look forward to that in the sense of uh, getting rid of this, you know, I don't know. I I've heard kids call it... Uh, flesh suit or something like that. That, that. That's, no. Meat suit, I think that's the one they call it. Um, so, at the end of the day, concerning this passage with verse 22, whether it's, uh, you know, dealing with Gnosticism or interacting with these sort of practical Romans, the bottom line is it's likely to see that the wisdom sought after by the Gentiles in Corinth was this sort of pseudo-philosophical syncretism, oftentimes with Christianity and pagan ideas. And of course, we see this in the mission fields, right? Um, wherever you go, as the gospel goes forth, people are like, yeah, I love Jesus, but I also want to incorporate him with whatever, you know, religions pre-existed before the gospel got there. Um, and, you know, if, if you're familiar with Mexican Christianity, there's a lot of that, right? Um, I'm familiar with Korean Christianity. There's a good bit of that. It's, it's a thing, right? And certainly reasonable to assume that that could have been what the, the issue was uh, in Paul's day, this sort of syncretism or interacting between two uh, religious philosophies. But whatever these ideals, ideas, the Gentiles in Corinth, uh, whatever ideas the Gentiles in Corinth contemplated were, they found the message of the cross to be foolishness. Crucifixion in any Roman province was seen as a wretched thing, right? And again, the Romans are practical people, right? And what do you do when you're practical? You demonstrate your power. You demonstrate your authority. You have a streamlined set of things. No, we're going to crucify you. You're going to stay out there. We're going to take the body down, not you. It's public humiliation. If he was a good Roman, if, if he did a capital crime and he's a Roman, we'd have been nice and lopped his head off, right? But since he's not a Roman, right? So typically, if you're getting uh, crucified, it, it's a good sign that you're not a Roman citizen. And so the cross, of course, is a sign of the conquered. It's generally reserved for the lower class, usually inflicted on slaves and rebels. They would sometimes crucify hundreds, sometimes thousands of men in public, so that their movement would be publicly scorned, scoffed, and condemned. And of course, we know from the Jewish scriptures that uh, anyone who is hung on a tree is cursed. So there's a double whammy for uh, any uh, Jewish religious movement there. It's not only is it political, the Romans are showing you're a rebel and you're disgusting, but also on top of that, if you're Jewish, you're also cursed. So you're cursed by God and man, so to speak. Verse 24, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Now, while Christ and his cross may be foolishness unto Greeks and a stumbling block to Jews, 
For us whom God has called, Christ is the power of God unto salvation, affecting that which the world was powerless to accomplish in her wisdom. But Christ is more than the regenerating, transforming power of God, beloved. He's also the wisdom of God. Elsewhere, Paul says in Colossians 1, for example, that Christ is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created that are in heaven and on earth, invisible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things were created through him and for him. We read in Proverbs 3, it says uh, in Proverbs 3.19, The Lord, by wisdom, founded the earth, and by understanding he established the heavens. By deduction, we can see that if Christ created all things, Colossians 1, and wisdom founded the earth, Proverbs 3, then Christ is wisdom. And Paul, of course, makes this explicit connection in 1 Corinthians. Christ is the wisdom of God, right? And that, of course, is what is it? 1 Corinthians 1.30. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So that's written, let anyone who boasts, boast in the Lord. So Christ is the wisdom of God, and he's a different sort of wisdom. We've looked at, you know, I, I labeled this two sorts of wisdom, but we've looked at three, right? There's one, there's pagan wisdom. There's two, wisdom of understanding God's good creation, and that could go towards a pagan direction or a believing direction. Um, and then, of course, we see Christ is the wisdom of God. So we, namely those whom God has called, experience this power and wisdom of God. Namely, we experience Christ and his benefits. Unlike the worldly wise, who possess a wisdom that cannot lead them to know God, we know God through our own wisdom. Now, we just spent a lot of time castigating the concept of our own wisdom. But, beloved, by faith union with Christ, what is his is yours. Jesus is ours. And so some of the cheesy Christian music that talks about my Jesus, it's not that far off because he is our Jesus. He is ours. We know God because our wisdom is Christ who possesses power and wisdom to the nth degree. Jesus, who became wisdom for us, presents us before the Father blameless. Our wisdom, not possessed by academic erudition or esoteric pondering, right? It's not like I'm going to reason my way here uh, to this wisdom, or it's not like it's, I, I found, you know, I, I dug up the, the secret knowledge, right? Whether they're gold plates or whatever the, uh, you know, fancy website is where people are boasting that they got all the secrets that nobody else does, which is kind of a fundamentally Gnostic characteristic. Or whether it's you found out what your gender is, which at the end of the day is another Gnostic tendency, right? There's no correlation between the spirit and the soul. I figured this out. I found this out. We could go on with all kinds of examples of how this sort of worldly wisdom can lead one. Jesus has become our wisdom. And Jesus prevents us, presents us before the Father blameless. 
And, of course, that wisdom that we have is by faith in the word of the cross. And it provides us with far more than the worldly wise could ever conceive of. You know, one helpful thing, I think, as believers, when we try to interact with our unbelieving friends and neighbors and colleagues, is trying to understand them, right? Given your presuppositions, where does this lead you, right? And, you know, I just, it's scary sometimes. Uh, I, I wonder, uh, you know, is, is there any, like, mental rest given that you can, you know, find some sort of Gnostic impulse to help you define who you are or how reality works, right? It's really scary, you know. A, a friend of mine that identifies as communist, I remember uh, he, was, he was mentioning, and he, I, one of those people that I love having conversations with and w- would hope to continue with, um, he just sat down one day and he says, Dan, I wish I could believe like you. I really do. And what it was is, you know, he had been all over the place, political ideology, dissatisfied with the outcomes of some of his votes and hopes, etc. Um, you know, philosophically, he moved from Judaism to Buddhism, and the guy was just tired, right? And he, there was like no certainty for him anywhere. And beloved, if we can find our wisdom in Christ, that would be a beautiful thing to say the least, okay? The word of the cross provides us with far more than the worldly wise could conceive of. Thus Jesus, God's wisdom, brings us, those whom God has called, full circle. The world as originally created by wisdom was a harmonious place where the relationship between God and man was one of unruptured fellowship. The fall and its effects changed that into a relationship of animosity and coming judgment. And in that realm, we failed, also our forefathers, failed to act wisely, and we increased our sin. Yet God, in providing His Son, the wisdom of God, brought a people back into a harmonious relationship with Him. Not only have we received Christ's righteousness by imputation, but we've also received His wisdom. And as a result, God views us as perfectly righteous, yes, and perfectly wise. And that's where we'll end, but don't think for a minute that because we have received Christ, the wisdom of God, that that rubber stamps everything that we want to do is right, okay? Uh, And of course, that's, you know, talking about sanctification, that our minds would be more and more renewed, that we would be pursuing growing in the the grace and knowledge of Christ that would be continued to be... uh, re-imaged in the image of our Savior. That's all I got for you today, guys. You got any questions? I know that grand chart of uh, verse 31, but... I know there's a lot of fast reading. Truth be told, I don't know what that was. It was something I found in my files. I'm like, oh, we'll just read that. Um... Let's pray then. Father, we live in a world uh, where chaos is common, and we thank you that uh, just as Jesus came and he calmed the storm, said, peace, be still, uh, he still comes and he, he does that by telling us who he is, who we are, and what he's done for us. And we thank you for the Apostle Paul that he shared with us 
Christ, the wisdom of God, and that we can learn that we find our comfort, we find our hope, we find our reality in him. A man that is uh, accused of being a fool because the wheels of history ran over him, it is said. But Lord, we know that uh, he has risen from the dead, and with that resurrection life, he grants that same power to those who believe. So Father, purify our hearts, uh, more and more apply uh, your spirit to our understanding that we might rejoice in who we are, and that we might love our neighbors, Lord. Here we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.